Brought to you by Feitner Productions. From the Unreasonable Doubt Studios, in association with Feitner Productions, this is Laying Down the Law with your host, Billy DeClerc, and co host, Curtis Rutherford. Featuring a jury of genius jokesmiths and paneled with the help of Publishers Clearinghouse, auditors from the firm of DCH Lottery Management, and selected by random draw from a hermetically sealed mayonnaise jar every Tuesday and Thursday at half past never. Only a madman would bring these people together to construct an entire virtual world of law and order simply to tear it asunder with ruckus laughter. That madman is attorney Billy DeClerc. The result is a podcast blasted to the farthest reaches of the interwebs. That podcast is this one, and it starts right now. Welcome to Laying Down the Law, the law and comedy podcast hosted by me, the improv omelet you eat on top of the Eiffel Tower, Billy DeClerc. <laughs> and I'm Curtis Rutherford, the co-host of this podcast and creator of Improv Beat by Beat, the audio interview textbook of improv comedy. I am the cracked eggshells at the bottom of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> and co-host Lauren Michaels is off this week. Sad face emoji. Very sad. But let's meet our guests. Well, welcome back to the show. Once again, one of my improv teachers, a legend of the second city and a friendly Canadian, Mr. Doug Morenci. Well, thank you. Hello, Billy. How are you? Good to see you. Hello, Curtis. Hello. Another returning guest, a comedy partner of Doug and another friendly Canadian. Please welcome Jack Mosshammer. Hey, how's everybody doing? Nice to be here, Billy. Nice to be here, Curtis. Doug, Hello. you're here too. Yeah, and I noticed you. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thrilled to have you both on the show. Well, before we get into the law stuff, let's take a break to promote some good stuff that we're promoting. Here's the story of coronavirus. When the government was clearly unprepared. All of us had heard the dire warnings, and we all got scared. It's the story of a world pandemic, where we all were told to lock down in our homes, with lots of hand washing and social distance. Now we are all alone, till the one day when we learned the world surrendered, and we had to overcome. You're on mute. Live comedy the second Saturday of every month at the Pack Theater in Hollywood. All right, let's make sure that we support those products and or services because if they weren't here, well, let's face it, I'd pretty much be here anyway. I don't have a lot of hobbies. Let's get into the case of the week. This week, we have two cases on the uh, legal doctrine of consideration. We're going to hear a case called Hammer versus Sidway from New York in 1891. And then sticking with the Big Apple, we're going to hear another case called Doherty versus Salt 
from 1919 featuring my favorite New York justice and yours, Benjamin Cardozo. That's right. <laughs> the Cardozo heads are going crazy. Yeah, we love we love Cardozo over here. Hammer versus Sid White. Uh, this is from 1891 again. Louisa Hammer filed this lawsuit. I think it's Hammer. It's one M. Maybe it's Hammer. Hammer. As a, Louisa as Hammer. a Moss Hammer. Hammer. I know there's Moss Hammers out there. Yeah. Yeah, Hammer. That's right. She sued Franklin Sidway. And Sidway was the executor of the estate of a William E. Story the first. And she sued for $5,000, which was a lot of money at the time. And please, let's not do the thing we always do, which is like, how much money would that be today? It's a lot. Here's the facts of the case that Louisa Hamer was suing for. On March 20th, 1869, William E. Story the first promised his nephew, William E. Story the second, $5,000 if he would abstain from drinking alcohol, using tobacco, swearing, playing cards, or playing billiards for money until William E. Story II reached the age of 21 years. The younger William E. Story accepted the promise and, according to the case, and all available evidence, this is pre-social media, I guess, he did in fact refrain from all the prohibited acts until he reached the age of 21. After he celebrated his 21st birthday, January 31st, 1875, he wrote to his uncle and requested the promised $5,000. Hey, Curtis, how much is $5,000 in 1875? Well, apparently that's $113,042.37 American. Ooh. Today's money. I mean, for over $100,000, I think there's plenty of uh, teenagers who would refrain from tobacco drinking alcohol, swearing, playing cards or billiards for money. For, and for especially in the 1860s, like you could swear and and use tobacco when you were seven. It was <laughs> <Pretty> expected. <much. laughs> right. It's hard to refrain from swearing while playing billiards. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so the uncle wrote back on February 6th, 1875 and said, yes, he'll fulfill his promise. He also said he'd prefer to wait until he was even older before he gave him that extremely large sum of money, which in today's dollars is how much, Curtis? $113,042.37. Yeah, that's a lot of money to give in a 21-year-old. He said it would accrue interest while he held it on behalf of his nephew. So the younger story agreed to his uncle's wishes, and he said the money could remain with his uncle until he became older. Well, William E. Story I died roughly... 12 years later, on January 29th, 1887, and he never gave the money to his nephew, the $5,000, I guess, plus interest. Here's where it gets complicated. What does Louisa Hamer have to do with the case? William E. Story Jr. transferred his financial interest to Louisa Hamer. Actually, his wife did it. So he got married, and apparently they sold this right to this $5,000 to this Louisa Hamer on assignment. I don't know if he, he borrowed money against it. That would be an interesting transaction. My, my uncle yeah. promised me this money. It's coming to me soon, but I want some money now, probably to spend on drinking, smoking, swearing, playing cards and billiards, because, you know, after waiting six years, that's going to be the thing you want to do for the following 12 years. Oh yeah. It's a loophole. Absolutely. The estate the executor, again, is Franklin Sidway, refused to give Hamer the money, saying that there was no binding contract because there was no 
consideration. Quick pause, just to be clear, because this part keeps rubbing against me, and this is not at all a legal thing, but William E. Story II is the nephew of William E. Story I. I didn't know you could do that. I didn't. <laughs> well, I think if it was junior and senior, maybe that's okay. that's this is your this is your tip off when you you know we get named after your uncle you're just the second so consideration is the stuff of a contract it's the thing that's being given or sold or traded or bargained or kept away from it's the stuff that makes the contract it's what's being exchanged so the modern the modern formulation of a contract is that consideration it's what's given in a bargained for exchange meaning that there's some exchange of value. Ah, okay. So the consideration is the value that's being exchanged. And the oldest formulation is that consideration can be so small, it could be a peppercorn. It could be just a peppercorn of consideration, just one something that's given. So that's why sometimes you'll see a binding contract for $1. That's for good and valuable consideration. You'll always see that recital at the beginning. For good and valuable consideration, which receipt thereof is acknowledged. It's just basically saying there's some valuable exchange. So Franklin Sidway, being a good trustee, wanting to hang on to the elder William E. Story's money says, no, this is not a binding contract. There was no consideration, which not a totally crazy standpoint to say, well, just refraining from drinking, smoking, playing cards and billiards for money and swearing. That's not really any value to William E. Story. And frankly, if you were a good boy, you would have done it anyway. And so to be clear, so the lack of consideration is because Story the first isn't really receiving anything with this lack of swearing. Right. If story the second had been like, Ah. I'm going to dance for you every birthday and then you'll give me $113,000, then it would have been like an exchange. of Yeah, there would be value received by William E. Story. But but here there's not really value received because Uh, he never paid him. It wasn't like a second story job. (laughs) (laughs) It was no there was no peppercorn transfer. No, no, (laughs) no. There's also a theory, a modern theory, which I'm going to just kind of parenthetically mention, which is called the pre-existing duty rule. Pre-existing duty is not like (laughs) when you go to the bathroom and somebody (laughs) forgot to flush. That's not pre-existing duty. Pre-existing duty is when you already are obliged to do something. You already have an obligation, a contractual legal obligation to do something. You can't make a contract to follow a pre-existing duty that you already are bound to do by a contract. So it's like, you know, I make a deal that I'm going to sell you something for $5. And then you say, oh, I'm going to make another contract. I'm going to sell you the same thing for $6. You already had a duty to sell it to me for five. I have no reason to believe this was ever argued, but it could have been argued that if William E. Story II was a good and virtuous young man, he would have refrained from drinking alcohol, using tobacco, swearing, playing cards or billiards for money until he was 21. Anyway, he had a pre-existing duty to do so. Not an argument made in the case. Louisa Hamer, obviously having loaned or given the money to William Story II's wife, whose name is not mentioned in the case for whatever reason, uh, sued because she wanted to recover the money that she had or whatever she had given them. And wait, it was the opposite way, right? It's Story's wife gave the money to Hamer. No, it would be like <laughs> if you you walk into a Bullocks, uh-huh. and you go into the Bullocks and you go, I would like to buy that Segway over there because they sell Segways at Bullocks. And you say, I, now I don't have any money, but I have this agreement 
that my my uncle or my husband's uncle is going to give me 113 113 how much Curtis $113,042.37 correct so i'm going to get that from my uncle and so i can certainly afford this segway and then the bullocks manager says hmm you don't want to take out a card you just you could just take out a store credit no 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 i want to use this contract okay so now the seller of the segway's got this assignment of this note they're now suing this team say, hey, we were promised this money. And so they're trying to get it back. Gotcha. And so the segue seller in this metaphor is Hamer, who then received the promise of 114000 right. from the wife. Because right. it was an assignment. So it's like, yeah, if you, 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 you take out a loan and then the loan gets assigned to somebody. Technically, was this a loan? Like, did, did Hamer realize that it was all dependent upon... Uh, uh, the second story, not drinking and chewing tobacco and playing billiards. And it seems like she did know that. Ah, okay. I don't know if it was in writing. It may, I think it was in, well, there is evidence that it was in writing because there's this letter, this exchange of letters in 1875. Remember you promised me $5,000. I didn't, I didn't do the things you told me not to do. And uncle, uncle William says, yep, I remember that. I'm going to give you the $5,000, but I'm going to hold on to the, to the money. Oh, f- ah, okay. Until you're older. And uh, the younger William story is like, hey, I got this money. I'm going to have fun until he was 33. So the issue in this case is framed this way, is merely abstaining from legal conduct sufficient consideration, just not doing something. The point is that William story, the second, didn't do something. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He didn't swear. He didn't play cards and he didn't play billiards. So he didn't do anything for the money. And that's why I think the initial finding is that, well, you didn't do anything for the money. And Louisa Hammer's like, that's the point. He didn't do all of these really awesome things that he could have done. All his friends were out, you know, <laughs> cussing and playing cards. And he was at home, you know. Uh, you know, practicing violin. This is also an extreme, like 1870s version of the marshmallow test. Of yeah, just, I was just don't do that. this and really wait, and you're going to get that money. Right. And for those of us who don't know, I mean, I know what the marshmallow test is, of course, but I mean, you know, but for those of our listeners who don't, there might be one of us out there who doesn't <laughs> you know, know what the marshmallow I'm, is. I'm extremely familiar with the marshmallow test. I talk about it every day, but Curtis, could you please fill in those listeners? Yeah, sure. It was one of those like kind of pop, uh, it's now become like a pop psychological type uh, experiment that was done. I feel like in maybe the 80s or 90s, but essentially they had kids in a room and they said, we're going to give you, um, there's going to be one marshmallow on the table in front of you. But if it's still there in, let's say 15 minutes, when we come back into the room, you'll get two marshmallows, right? So then they left the room and some kids just ate that first marshmallow in front of them right away. Some kids abstained, waited that 15 minutes, and then got that extra marshmallow. The then findings, which are like any pop psychological thing of some dispute, were that the kids who restrained, uh, refrained and waited for that second marshmallow then did better on later in life. Mm-hmm. Now, there's obviously a whole lot of like socioeconomic considerations <laughs> there that would make it more likely that you would wait and blah, 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 so that all of these results are murkier. But the idea for a while is you want to be a two marshmallow kid. You don't want to be, you know, the the kid who just instantly eats that marshmallow. Yep. And I'm raising my hand as a one marshmallow kid right now. 
Yeah, same here. <laughs> if I was a two marshmallow I, kid, I would have waited to hold, raise my hand a little while longer. <laughs> 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 yeah, I think that, yeah, there's there are quite a few confounds to that study, but that's cool. Okay, cool. Now we learned something not necessarily legal, but also useful and interesting. Okay. So mere abstention from legal conduct is sufficient consideration. That's the holding of the case. Sorry, when they say abstention from legal conduct, does that mean like he's abstaining from things that legally he could do? Right. Like he, he okay. legally could have done these things. So gotcha. So if his could, uncle had asked him, like, hey, don't murder anybody and he doesn't right. murder. You're right. Not that's, that's a that's the line you want to draw right there. It's like, well, just a, just obeying the law is is not consideration. So, you know. Thinking about the pre-existing duty riff that I went on, you know, would it be an enforceable contract? This is something to think about for the discussion portion of today's uh, laying down the law. Um, would it be sufficient consideration if you told your kid, if you don't speed in your car, and we have, a, you know, a Tesla or whatever kind of car that you have that you can, you know, monitor somebody 24-7. If you don't ever speed in your car, or maybe a phone, you could probably do it with a phone. You don't ever speed in your car. I'll give you, you know, 5,000 bucks. Well, you're not supposed to speed anyway, right? Would that contract be enforceable? Assuming your kid is over the age of 18 and the legal contract is enforceable anyway, if they're under 18, it's not. But I digress from my digression. And the general feeling is that that contract would not be enforceable because since that is illegal conduct, there is no consideration. I would, And definitely that, for this holding. Yeah, what that's about what I think. It's illegal conduct that everybody routinely uh, breaks the law <laughs> right. on. So right. it's 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 conventional that we speed. It's, yeah. Um, it's what, what do they call that? It's like um, it's just the way it is anyway. We're going to speed. Right. We intentionally are breaking the law. Yeah, I yeah. noticed this list did include things like drugs and prostitutes so i guess it was just to the the minor vices <laughs> yeah the minor yeah yeah the gate the gateway vices really so the so the reasoning is um the meat and the potatoes of this case of course in every case the re we obviously don't care about the repetition of this specific fact pattern <laughs> The issue, the issue or the question here is refraining from something can, in fact, be consideration. And so what the court said is that consideration can be valuable in, in some kind of a right or an interest or a profit or a benefit to one of the parties or forbearance, detriment, loss or responsibility given, suffered or taken by the other party. So let me just unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Okay. yeah wait, wait, wait. So you have party A and party B. So party A contracts with party B. If party B is giving something of value to person A, so in this case, if the younger William E. Story was giving something for the $5,000, an old bookcase for $5,000, then there has been an exchange of value because party B to the contract is, is, is giving some value, giving something to the other person that that person then benefits from. And so therefore there's consideration, the peppercorn. So the $5,000 for a peppercorn would be consideration. Don't know why William Story the first would pay $5,000 for a peppercorn. 
But if he would, he'd be obtaining something of value, just a peppercorn, but something of value. It's a non-zero value. Okay. So that's, that's the first half of the formulation is some right interest, profit, or benefit given from one party to the other. The flip of it, the, I don't know if it's converse or reverse or whatever, but other version of it is forbearance, detriment, loss, or responsibility given, suffered, or undertaken by the other party. So in that, that formulation, party B is giving something up, suffering. The best example of this that I can think of offhand is an insurance contract, an indemnity agreement. And so the insurance company is getting a pre- getting paid a premium. And in exchange, they agree that if you total your car, they're going to pay you about half of what it's worth even though the contract says they're going to give you all of the value, but you know, they give you, they probably, they're going to give you something. So they're, a, they're taking on a loss. They're taking on something that hurts them. So it's, it's the value give. It's not that they're giving something of value. It's that they're accepting a responsibility, accepting something that is a loss of forbearance, agreeing not to do something. And so here the court found that it's enough that William E. Story II restricted his lawful freedom of action based upon the agreement. He could have sworn legally. He could have drank alcohol legally. I think I think we stipulated that it's legal to drink alcohol and smoke at age seven in New York <laughs> in the 70s. We're from uh, Mark Twain. Yeah, I believe so. Um, and so those were things that he could have legally done, but he didn't do them based upon this agreement. The other thing is that the court said There wasn't anything in the record that said that the uncle didn't get any benefit at all from that. Maybe he was walking around going, what a great uncle I am. I got this kid to finally stop swearing at billiards. (laughs) Right. I kept him on the straight and narrow. See, I see it as uh, an actor because we see ourselves as the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. That's what William Jr. was doing. He was acting like a good boy. And for that, he got paid (laughs) $113,042.37. And it was a five-year, how long was the contract? How long did he have to do it? About six years. Yeah, he had six seasons of not uh, uh, (laughs) chewing tobacco, uh, doing this. He was putting on a performance. And at the end of it, his wife, Gave the money to an agent, and the agent wanted the money from uh, where do you call it? Yeah, uh, I think that's I exactly right. That's exactly right. I mentioned this idea of a bargain for exchange, and this case exemplifies an older view of contracts that's really not applicable today in the modern formulation of contracts. And this is the benefit detriment theory in the courts in the late 1800s. The idea that. Party B either needs to be giving a benefit to party A or taking a detriment to themselves in order for there to be consideration. And the current modern formulation of contracts is the bargain theory, the bargain for exchange. I think because contracts have become far, far more complex. So the idea is simply that there is this exchange of value or exchange of promises that doesn't necessarily have to be a specific benefit to one side or a detriment to one side. It's just both parties are exchanging something 
of some value to each other. So it's a much more flexible and open formulation than was applicable at the time. So would this, do you think this would still fly under the bargain theory? That's a good question. I don't know. I think yes, because the, I actually think Jack's explanation is, is, is a perfect explanation of what the bargain is that, that it's basically he's purchasing a performance mm-hmm. um, and services. It's, it's, it's a service done for the benefit of his uncle. And the uncle said, Hey, I want you to be this kind of a kid. And the kid did it. And, and, you know, that was, and he did it for the money because otherwise he'd have been, you know, knee deep in the booze. So I think it would still hold up that abstaining from things that you could otherwise do would still be a bargain for exchange. Yeah. But it's a different view or a different perspective on the contract. Man, I should have been a lawyer. I <laughs> know. Uh, I think that, that I think you're fine. <laughs> I should have been a lawyer in 1869. In, eight, yeah, in 1869, yeah. Get to wear the powdered wig. I mean, I don't know how different a lawyer and an actor really is, to be honest. But before I move on, is there any other comments, questions, concerns, or thoughts about Hammer versus Sidway? Hey, do you know if William William II actually uh, continued to uh, be a uh, Vice free or did like the day it ended, did he just go out and just like, all right, man, this is it. And load up, make up for six years of lost yeah, time. Let's say he went on a 12 year bender, which is why his wife is <laughs> borrowing money from Louisa Hamer. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's my guess. Our second case today is Doherty versus Salt is also a New York case. This is a Benjamin Cardozo case from 1919 in Doherty versus Salt. The facts are as follows. The plaintiff, Doherty, when he was about eight years old, got a promissory note from his aunt. Now, this suit is brought after the aunt passes away. The promissory note was for $3,000 that was payable at her death or before. Promissory note is um, just like any kind of a loan. It's the document you sign that you're promising to pay. So a promissory note can be Five words, 10 words, it's like an IOU, any kind of a promise to pay, uh, not a check. A, a, a check is um, that it's being drawn on an account, but literally a loan of any kind that's that's evidenced by a note is called a promissory note. And that $3,000, $44,425.65 today. Thank you, Curtis. Problem that gives us the, the necessary context to, to, to understand this, and that is how Jack and Doug you become a co host. <laughs> <laughs> math skills, dang, mad math yeah. skills, and he's doing all that math in his head, by the way. So, the three thousand dollars was payable at her death or before, and it was you they used a permanent a printed form that said for value received. Now, remember what I said earlier about a peppercorn and about these recitals. It says, for valuable consideration received, blah, 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 blah. The parties agree this and that and the other. So they use this form that says, for value received, $3,000 to you, kiddo. You can get it either at my death or any time before. Now, in the case, they have this long recitation of the, where the guardian on, at trial was asked to recount this entire conversation that led to the, the $3,000 note. And apparently the aunt was visiting her nephew and the guardian testified 
when she saw Charlie come in, she said, Isn't he a nice boy? And I answered her, Yes. He is getting along very nice and getting along nice in school. And I showed how she he had progressed in school, having good reports and so forth. And she told me, I'm going to take care of that child. I love him very much. And so I said, I know you do, Tilly, but your taking care of the child will be done probably like your brother and sister did it, which is just taking it out and talk. And she said, uh, I don't intend to take it out and talk. I would like to take care of him now. And I said, well, that's up to you. And she said, why can't I make a note out to him? And I said, hey, you can if you wish to. Would that be right? And I said, I don't know. Well, I guess it would. I don't know why I wouldn't. And she said. <laughs> Well, will you make out a note for me? And I said, yes, if you wish me to. Well, I wish <laughs> you would. And that's the story of how the promissory note came to be. So the promissory note was written up and Aunt Tilly wrote on the promissory note, which already said for value received, she wrote, you have always done for me, and I have signed this note for you. Now, do not lose it. Someday it will be valuable. That's what the note said. Sorry, the Guardian really twisted the ant's arm here in this. Like, the ant was like, oh, I hope that, uh, you know, I would love to take care of him. And the Guardian is like, <laughs> oh, yeah, sure you do. Let's let's see it in writing, lady. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of feel like the the take on the Guardian would have been a little bit more like the like the Tony Soprano. Like, <laughs> eh, no, you do, but uh, ah, you're gonna take it out and talk. It's up to you. Well, you can if you want. It's like very like, and eh, you yeah. know, maybe you will, maybe you won't. You're gonna do what your brothers did, what your sisters did. That's all. They, Come on, it's a point to talk. You know, it's a point. And I don't know if the if her brother. Uh, brother and sister like if they croaked before this happened because that's kind of a sad you know sad kid oh because he does have a guardian this is the guardian who's saying all this so <laughs> the guardian's tony soprano he's like hey you go give him money if you want to i don't know you know he's doing all right so at trial they asked the jury to answer the question as to whether that testimony of the guardian about what had been discussed with the aunt um, and then looking at what the note said, which is, you have always done for me, and I have signed this note for you. Now, don't lose it. Someday it'll be valuable. Whether that constituted consideration. And the jury said, yes, they found in favor of the boy. He was obviously not a boy anymore, but they, but they found that there was consideration for the note. And the judge said, mm, I don't think so. And throughout the judgment, for $3,000, which was at the time $44,425.65. And so the boy appealed in the appellate level. The jury verdict was reinstated in his favor. And so then the, the aunt's trustee or whoever appealed to the New York Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in the land in the state of New York. Justice Cardozo, being the heavyweight, wrote the unanimous opinion of the court which said, no, no consideration. Bullshit. Justice Cardozo is all about screwing the little guy. Let me tell you, that's why we're fans of Justice Cardozo. 
any chance he gets, he always screws the little guy. So the promissory note was written on a form that said for value received. And the aunt clearly intended to give this to the boy as a gift. Even though on the thing it said, you have done for me. You have done for me. And now I do for you. But that done for me is services rendered being a good boy. He was good in school, but he had done that in advance of getting the note. He didn't do that performance in reliance on getting the note to distinguish from from Hammer versus Sidway. There was no performance undertaken in reliance on that note. So if it said, you will do for me. Mm -hmm. Get good grades. Right. So the note was voluntary promise of an executory gift, meaning like in a will, but it wasn't actually in the will. It was this note. So there's a there's an element of this that gets into wills, um, wills and estates, but it's not a valid gift under a will theory. Justice Cardozo points out that the child of eight was not a creditor, nor was he dealt with as one. She was not paying a debt and she was conferring a bounty. And Justice Cardozo writes, the promise was neither offered nor accepted with any other purpose. So a note, that's given for that reason is not for value received, even if the maker labeled it that. The formula of the printed blank form becomes, in light of the facts, a mere erroneous conclusion, which cannot overcome the inconsistent conclusion of the law. When you say conferring a bounty, what does that bounty mean? Because I'm imagining like... Like a gift. Okay, gotcha. Not like dog the bounty hunter bounty. No, right. Yeah, that's the dark part of it. (laughs) There is someone will start to hunt you. Yeah, there is actually a bounty involved. You've done for me. Now I do for you. Exactly. What about the kid holding on to the note? That's the something they did. Hold on to this note and it will be valuable. Right. He he held on to it. That's a good argument. And had you been the lawyer back in 1919 when this case was decided, the kid would have a better chance. I I need a time machine. I got to get back there. Also, you're using your time machine just to re-argue. <laughs> it's important to try along. That'll change history immensely 50 so years many later. Ways. Yeah. So that's the point is even though the contract here says that it was for value received, it says there was consideration that the court says, no, I know you wrote that in the contract, but actually no, and threw it out. So that is uh, Doherty versus Salt. Is it super common for... because? The 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 jury held for the kid, and then the judge was instantly like, "No, you guys are wrong. Why did I even have a jury?" Like, and then threw it out. What's the point there of having a jury if the judge is just going to say, "Well, I didn't want you to say that." <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a really good question. So the the relationship of judge and jury is that the jury is typically given questions of fact. And typically given the requirement to apply facts to law. So the judge will spend, before the jury deliberates, about an hour reading instructions. This I'm going to tell you what the law is. The law is this. The law is that. The law is this. The law is that. Now go deliberate. And the jury is supposed to apply and interpret the facts that they've heard to the law that they've heard. And so in this case, the judge said, no, 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 the jury got it wrong. Because there was no evidence that there was consideration here. The jury couldn't have found that. If the jury did that, they made a mistake of law and threw it out, which the 
judge can do, it rarely happens, but if the judge finds that no reasonable jury could have concluded X, Y, and Z. He just called them an unreasonable jury. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were unreasonable. They didn't understand what the law is. And so we judges know better. We know what consideration is. I have a, a small hypothetical question connected to this. Say the jury, so some crime, crime A, the jury finds the defendant innocent, acquits them. Can I, as the judge, still find some way to sentence them anyway? <laughs> well, okay. So, <laughs> um, okay, so criminal versus civil law first, right? <laughs> no. No, no. Well, even no, five years. I think we ought to, maybe we ought to do that, but um, <laughs> you're innocent, but you're an asshole. Five years. Yeah, exactly. You're innocent, but you still need to do some time. <laughs> You'll be taken from this. Yeah, taken from this courtroom and hung until dead. <laughs> Sorry, man. That's the way I'm feeling yeah, right that's now. That's how it goes. Yeah. That's how it goes. Unreasonable jury over here. Can't let that yeah. go. Yeah. So I just don't like the cut of your jib. You're gone. Exactly. <laughs> These yeah. guys are dummies. Yeah. So that, that, I mean, the, the judge can't, I mean, in particularly in, in, I don't think that's true in criminal cases unless it's um, reversing a conviction. You could reverse a conviction, but not an acquittal. Mm. Um, in civil cases, um, there's more leeway, obviously, because nobody's being like incarcerated as a result. It's just money, you know, and what is money, right? Um, so the so the judge can, but but basically, when the when the jury either was so unreasonable that they were they they couldn't have possibly concluded it this way, the judge can take it away from the jury. And there's a few different procedural ways to do that. And when you're a defense lawyer, as I frequently am, you find as many ways as possible to have the judge take the decision away from the jury, uh, whether it's uh, having an arbitration provision in advance, throwing out the case at the outset because it's not a legal case, filing a summary judgment motion because no jury could ever find for the plaintiff in this set of facts or, um, you know, or at trial, trying to get the judge to throw it out midway through, or even after a jury verdict, you can also try and get the judge to throw it out afterwards. Or on appeal, trying to get the appellate court to reverse the jury verdict. It gets increasingly harder at every stage of the thing. But the judge, the judge does because judges are supposed to know what the law is, and juries are supposed to interpret the interpret and apply the law based upon the facts. Was Salt the one who was trying to get the money? But the judge decided that it there was no consideration. Salt is the executor of the estate. Oh, so it's not that Salt didn't get any pepper. It's that Doc <laughs> didn't get the pepper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm doing bad puns, but my sound didn't go up for a while. I just wanted to check. It was worth the wait. It was worth yeah. it. It was oh, worth oh it. To kind of sum things up, what we understand is that consideration is the idea that something of value has been exchanged, whether it's the idea of this benefit detriment theory or the bargain for exchange. It's that a contract in order to be a valid contract must involve an exchange of value. And even a gratuitous promise, like the case of Hammer versus Sidway, where it's a promise of payment if you don't do something, that's also enforceable 
because there's a reliance factor that the nephew was relying on that promise being kept. And so if there's no reliance, as there is in Doherty versus Salt, it's just a gift. And in the case of Doherty versus Salt, it was a failed gift because there was nothing ever delivered. So it wasn't a contract that could be enforced. So this idea is that there there needs to be some exchange of value and that if it's just a gift, if it's just a, um, sometimes we call it a gratuitous promise, which is a promise to make a gift, I'm going to give you $100 in a year from now. There's nothing done in reliance on that. I'm going to pay you to be on my podcast you know, then it's enforceable because you're on the podcast, you're here, you're not doing other things you could do. Yes. So I am going to, you know, by the way, the checks in the mail. (laughs) 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 That's the basic concept of consideration. Concluding thoughts, questions. All right, let's go to a commercial, maybe um, for a product or service, maybe. And then when we come back, we'll do some improv. Yay. You're on mute. Live comedy the second Saturday of every month at the Pack Theater in Hollywood. And we're back. Uh, William, can can you come in here a second? Um, your, hey, your mom wanted. Hey, uncle. Your mom. Your mom wanted me to talk to you. Uh, I know. Since I know dad, about the birds uh, and the bees, Uncle. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well. I, 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 since your dad passed away, uh, mm-hmm. um, she wanted a male role model to sit you down and talk. And it, it's funny, your dad just sort of mysteriously disappeared. And your mom said she was digging up some flowers in the backyard and she found some body parts. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know um, anything about that. Well, it's, it's you're... funny. If... Hmm? Knock, knock, knock on the door. Loud knocks on the door. Oh, knocks on the door. Hold on a second. Let me just check this out. Hi, it's uh, Detective Stevenson. Uh, Uh, Here to investigate the body parts found in the flower beds. Oh, Detective Stevenson. Yeah, um, we were just talking about that. And my son, William, basically is a good boy or he can be a good boy. He just needs the he just needs the right incentive. And is this true, William? Uh, I mean, you know, mostly. Do you swear a lot? I do. I uh, do you swear, swear while you're playing? Do you swear while you're playing billiards? I fucking swear about billiards all the time. Uh, Tell you what, if mm-hmm. you can refrain from swearing while playing billiards, I won't investigate this crime. And, and, and what was your name I again? I'm sorry, you detective. Who? Who's he? What's Stevenson. Now? Stevenson. Detective Stevenson. Will you mind signing a 
promissory note. I'm a very sophisticated cussing billiard playing uh, 15 year old. So well, I'm going to get um, that in writing. I will certainly, and I'm not too, uh, you know, picky about the wording you use. So just whatever captures the gist. And do you know what? I will add to this pot. Okay. If you don't kill any more people, I will give you these two coupons to Burger King. Okay. So, so from, from, from you now, uh, you can't kill anybody. You okay, can't, kill, can't any, kill anyone. You can't kill your mom. I, although I didn't see her here today, mm -hmm. you cannot kill this detective. You cannot kill me. You cannot kill anybody. And yet I'll give you these two coupons for Burger King. Okay. So, uh, for good and valuable consideration received, I, uh, Uncle Bill, mm -hmm. hereby promise two coupons yes. to Burger King. Yes. If you, William, kill nobody. Kill, cut to three minutes later. Ah, stop stabbing me. Bill! Billy! Billy! I don't like we, you. I don't uh, like you. You come in our house and you ask for Billy, I am going to rip up the coupons. I will rip up the coupons. I, I mean prefer it. McDonald's anyway. Take that, Officer uh, Stevenson. Uh, knock, knock, knock. It's Chief Stephenson, Officer Stevenson's <laughs> chief. Now, uh, clearly you've murdered one of my officers. You seem to have murdered some other people. But here's the He's thing. We believe boy. in rehabilitation. I don't know how you justice. can tell that. My hands well, are... you're holding a knife in my officer as we speak. I want a lawyer. Okay, well, uh, here's the thing. We can keep this away from the lawyers. Uh, you know what? If you just promise, just promise no more murdering cops. And along with Stevenson's promise, no more murdering, uh, no more uh, cussing at billiards. And uh, I believe you also had a promise. Well, I, I ripped up the coupons for Burger King, but I tell okay. you what, <laughs> I happen to have a flyer for DQ. Huh? Ooh, huh? Is that a blizzard? Who, who wants a blizzard? Oh, I love a blizzard. As long as you don't kill any cops. Hey, thank you for coming together and joining us here for this focus group. Uh, that's fine. That's fine. Um, <laughs> as promised, uh, there'll be a free chicken dinner um, at the end of all this, but we want your opinion. Um, we at the court systems of the United States, and that's just a name that we're working with right now, and we'll probably come at you and what, what are the sexiest, hippest names we can call our legal system. But mm. we want... The naming of our court levels just befuddles most average Americans, and we want to just throw some stuff by you guys. Can I ask a question? Yeah, of course you can. This is a focused group. Will we get dark meat or white meat with the chicken dinner? You'll have a choice. And if you, oh, want, to have, oh. it, and if you want both, go ahead. Oh, I'm all for I, this. Whatever it is, I'm for me, it. I have a, a question. Certain. Um, yeah, you. Okay, so so... Adding on to this question about dark meat or light meat, I'm also wondering about sides. Oh, yeah, that's good. I mean, really important. So if I was going to offer you sides, would you want corn or would you like a salad? Would you like potato or something less starchy? I mean, I was thinking starches. I was thinking mac and cheese mm. and potatoes, gravy, things oh, like yeah, that. That's what I'm know, it's like... It is very popular. So starches it is. Excellent. Uh, excuse me, sorry. I, I have a question about the the tiers of government, right? Or the yeah. tiers of, of of law, right? Uh, okay. so, there's, so there are like there's there's the three different courts or or more, and um, my uh, do they decide what's a dinner? Do I get a Dr Pepper with the chicken dinner? Um, 
Yeah, yeah. This was all decided many years ago in 1919, what you would be having, what would be up for grabs. And at that time, soda was new to the menu. So um, as long as it existed in 1919, you can have that particular soda. Do I have to eat all of it? Um, unfortunately, yes. Does that include the bones? Uh, no, no one expects you to eat the bones, but the bones should be clean. All right, I'd like to make a suggestion for some of these yes. levels. Okay. So, so I think we could kind of think of the, the, the systems of government kind of like a food pyramid, but awesome. Go ahead. So what's the lowest level of court call? Well, I mean, you know, you're, 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 you always want to start with kind of like the, when I have a chicken dinner. I don't know about all of you. But when I have a chicken dinner, I always start with the starches. And then I wow. work my way to the proteins. And then if I'm still hungry, then I get to, you know, anything that's green. Wow. Good. Excellent. Really, really nice. Oh, yeah. So I, like if oh, I go ahead, I'd like to say something. I, I think we're missing the real point here. What we've been given is a chance to try and build a system, a system that represents yeah. all of America and all Americans at different levels. Yeah. I think what we need to talk here is, is not about the glamour or glitz of a name or what foods we may or may not have, but I think what we need to discuss is how can we best represent the people out there who need representation. Can you stop of can you stop taking your clothes off while you are <laughs> saying this? I just I just think the nudists should be heard. And I just want to hold oh, oh, hold on here. <laughs> the belt's Sir, cut. Please. I just please. think that basically oh, wow. he's clearly a sovereign citizen. Wow. That's right. He is not I think we should be in the nude nude um, food rights i mean i for one stand impressed i give this man whatever he wants all right um all right sir um listen i think it's you've gone a little far uh, i don't know that i really appreciate your methods and making your argument but you've obviously swayed this focus group i mean um, i wouldn't everybody be swayed by those arguments i mean if if i was you know gifted in that way i'd make my arguments the same way I call this the gavel. <laughs> I may have seen some of your movies. Case closed. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so, um, Mr. Lawyer, sir, uh, I, I, I appreciate you uh, agreeing to defend me for um, taking a lean on a DQ blizzard. Um, I promise I will give you the DQ blizzard um, uh, after uh, you, you successfully defend my court case. But I need to tell you some things that are covered by attorney-client privilege. All right, go ahead. Go okay, ahead. I'm, I'm ready. Just thinking right. about that blizzard. Mm -hmm. Okay, so <laughs> number one, I killed all those people. Okay. okay. I am in no way innocent. Um, in fact, I killed a bunch of other people who promised me other fast food items. Okay. Okay. There's a ton of evidence. Um, I, I was literally caught with blood on my hands and a murder weapon in my hands. And I refused to take a plea deal. Okay. So that doesn't, that doesn't sound great. To be honest, it sounds like I'm probably not getting this blizzard, but here's what I know 
that you don't. Okay. What we are going to do is I'm going to try to make sure this doesn't even make it into the courts. Okay. And if it does, okay. If we even like, let's say we, we fail at the first court, the mashed potato court, then we take it on to the next court, which is the fried chicken court. And then after that, if we don't work there, we go to the Supreme court of the land, cornbread cornbread okay now we're gonna work our way up it'll be fine okay yeah yeah you got so what you murdered the people maybe murdering them was part of a contract that they agreed to yeah 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 meanwhile meanwhile in a room very close to the room that these two are in you know i don't think uh captain that we should be electronically eavesdropping the way we are here they're discussing their legal strategies well, we're just, uh, we're just, uh, we're just trying to do our job as police officers and find out exactly what happened. But we can pretend we just don't know. That's fine. But he was confessing stuff that he, he like his lawyer, you know, only his lawyer should know. And now it's, we know it. Exactly. He's guilty. So it's all right for us to do this. If he, if he confessed, he didn't do it. I'd feel terrible. We cut back to the lawyer, the lawyer meeting room. And so, so basically, I mean, what I want to share with you just confidentially and attorney client privilege is that of course. I, I would cop to all these crimes. I really would. I would do it for a Klondike bar. I mean, you know, I listened to that old commercial, you know, in oh, the of course, 90s. Yeah. what would you do for a Klondike bar? I would confess to these murders and much more in oh, fact, and, and implicate all my co-conspirators. But I'm glad. Meanwhile, that- meanwhile, in the hallway, get away from the vending machine. I know this. No. Machine. You won't take my bill. Give me a dollar. I, I I can't take my I can't connect myself like this and give you a dollar. I'm not Fine. complicit. This is a police emergency. Oh my! God. Ah, there. Klondike <laughs> <laughs> bar. It got a little blood on it, but you I'm now sure committed a crime in in the uh, while committing a crime. This is like it's a crime. okay. He's guilty. Didn't you hear him? <sighs> knock 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 knock. Oh oh. I'm sorry, lawyer. I didn't catch your name, but would you mind, sir, answering sure, the door? Sure. I'll. Uh, yeah. Go ahead and come on in. We're gonna. We're. We'll. We'll pause. Uh, attorney-client privilege for just a second. <laughs> oh, come yes. On in. Do you have to count to three and hold your nose or something? Yes. Yeah. yeah. We're having okay. the cone of lawyer Two, privilege. Three. Okay. okay. I just happened to be walking by with this extra Klondike bar that has a little blood on it. Um. Uh, would you be willing to uh, maybe? get a deal going uh in the courts wait is that a is that a real klondike bar yes we we have judge cordoza on the ice cream level that's who you're going to be up against and uh he'll do anything for a klondike bar as maybe your client would wait a minute they already they boosted this all the way up to the the ice cream level oh yes yes oh, uh, 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 you'll you'll be surprised what a a, a kidney pie could do <laughs> This happens sometimes. Sometimes the lower courts just decide already that uh, they're just appealing. They just the courts are appealing themselves and they send it to the next level, and it just goes straight up to the top. Uh, so Billy, you know, you do anything for Klondike bar? You I have mean, to not well do something. That's a well-known fact. It's a well-known fact that anybody will do anything for a Klondike bar. You completely lose any type of self-restraint. And that's you- that's my blood on the Klondike bar. Oh. Are you shut up? Bleeding? Shut up! I told you this is police jurisdictions. Uh, ugh, ugh. Yeah, take that! I'll stab you with the Klondike bar <laughs> again. Ugh. 
Oh, don't get blood on it. Next to the room that was next to the first room. All right, special agent. I believe we have enough information about police brutality. Uh, yeah. Do we? The, the, the man's not dead yet. We don't until he's dead. It's a terror. Like, is this brutal hitting someone with an ice cream bar? That sounds like more like a treat to me. Is that really what we could construe as a weapon? Well, he has. Bl- there's blood on the Klondike bar. I would say if there's blood on it, probably a weapon. Oh, yeah, it just seems like he's trying to do something nice for him. From where I sit, anyway, one police officer investigating another police officer. We cut to the room next to the room next to the room. Well, there, uh, chief of internal, internal, internal investigations. Um, we've got them fully fooled. We've got internal operations thinking that they're the only ones investigating the police brutality that think they're investigating the uh, the, the criminals. But in fact, we're investigating the investigators. coming. I has this all wrapped up. Why, they're going to go down big for this. <laughs> Unless, of course, they can come up with the goods. Everybody on the force is in the goods. That's they true. Can get and me. by the goods, we mean Choco Tacos. That's right. <laughs> One briefcase full of Choco Tacos will get them out of this. They've Hoo-ha! been discontinued, so it's impossible. We can't be corrupted. That's right. We are the incorruptibles. That's right. Someday they'll make a TV series about us. We cut to the room next to the room next to the room next to the room, which is actually the original room because these are in a circle. What are those guys doing over there? I'm not really sure. Just monologue. I don't know. I mean, I I just have to say I appreciate the artistry of actually murdering someone with a Klondike bar. I mean, you know, had I thought of that, I would have definitely tried it if I hadn't eaten all the Klondike bars in advance. But this is all still privileged, right? Because they're both oh, they're, they're dead, right? So. Oh yeah! As soon as the uh, as soon as the cops die, that's a that's a little subset of attorney <laughs> privilege. If any of the cops near you die, it basically reinstates. It's like an automatic thing. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Cut to the ice cream court five months from now. <laughs> <clears throat> so, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you have been given the evidence before you, and the case has been tried. It now <laughs> have been sequestered and come up with a decision. It's your chance to bring justice to this world. Your Honor, Your Honor, I know I'm just a bailiff, but you are you okay? Are you sure you're okay? I'm perfectly all right. You're sweating a hell of a lot. You look really, your color is terrible. I, I shouldn't be in the ice cream court. I'm like no. this color, but I will not. I, I'm sorry. Uh, hey. Stop me from my job. I see an aneurysm so- growing on your head right as we speak, sir. We must hear from the foreman no, and find uh, we, out exactly. Hold on, we have to. We have to stop. You're clearly not okay. You also called a jury. We're that. We were the Supreme Court. Now we're the ice cream court. We've never called juries before. This is I'm Jim. <laughs> oh my God! Oh. Oh. This is worse than I thought. He's yelling and no sound is coming out. Well, I'm Justice <laughs> Doctor. I'm Justice Doctor Treatment, sir. And uh, as a justice and a doctor treatment, I have never seen an aneurysm literally outside of someone's head. But yet he's got an aneurysm literally outside of his head, which makes me want to give up my past as a, as a, as a judge and go back to being a doctor. And I'm going to operate. I need the room. Wait, but we have a problem. You can't operate. If that aneurysm... So, 
an ice cream judge is appointed for life. An aneurysm came from him and is now alive. We can all agree an aneurysm is like a corporation alive, right? Correct. Yes. So that we're, we're the, we're the ice now- cream court, formerly known as this. What formerly known as the Court of Appeal, formerly known as the Supreme Court. We can decide yes. an aneurysm is a person. Yes, absolutely. But that us. means that aneurysm is also a chief justice of the ice cream court. That's true. Well, I just want to know if if the aneurysm will vote the way I vote on cases. <laughs> aneurysm. <laughs> I believe in the American right of people and aneurysms. I think it should be a choice of freedom up to the states and the individual that the government decides on. Those were all the important rights. American right of people, states' rights decide on. Those are the important (laughs) rights I think we all agree in Canada. There we go. This is the aneurysm jurisprudence. It's like a new I get two votes now. I haven't heard I haven't heard opinions expressed this eloquently since Justice Cardozo stepped down just 15 years ago at the age of 182. That's right. And his legacy will be carried on with every cancerous fiber of my being. Well, can I ask you one question? Just one question, Justice Aneurysm. You may. What are you going to do about the little guy? Ah, the little guy. The little guy who makes up the percentage of this population that we call America must go forward (laughs) and learn. And as the justice continued on with his speech, he disrobed in front of everybody. He started to grow and became a giant naked justice. He burst through the window of the courthouse and was climbing the buildings. Everyone... Yes, everyone ignored his cry for justice and just started shooting at him. (laughs) Until the justice came to a small hut in a small field just at the corner of Maine uh, and another Prague state. Hello, Justice. I was. I'm sorry. I was just tilling the field between Maine and, let's say, North Carolina, and you're out here. Bob, are you talking to that guy with the huge gavel? Yeah. Daddy, he doesn't look too well. I just want to say, you, you there working the field, you are a good boy. You are a very good boy, and I want to take care of you. Here. Hold on. aneurysms coming out of your tear ducts as you talk. Okay, I'll take this. Hold on to this aneurysm. It will mean something, and... uh, Future. And it was at that moment he fell uh, into a heap on the field, dead. All the townsfolks came and marveled. That is one enormous gavel. It's huge. No wonder they called him the Hammer of Justice. Attention, (laughs) attention, I have news. You have witnessed a ice cream court justice dying, and therefore, by the case of the Santa Claus versus elves, you are now a supreme, uh, excuse me, ice cream court justice. Oh, that's fantastic. How are we hold the responsibility 
we're a whole town of Supreme Court ice cream court justices. Whatever we say now is law. And this, this gavel shall be our symbol. If I could just... Yeah, this, is this, this gavel I hold above my head is oh, the symbol just... of justice in our town and throughout the land. Well, little boy just ripped off his giant gavel. My God. And, uh, it, it was going so good for a while until he did that. Like, now it's just like... That was a step too far, I think. Yeah, I mean, I felt like the, it was more like a the, the dormant power of the gavel was a little bit more compelling. Yeah, like, it's just, and seeing it being waved like that, all sort of flaccid, became like, <laughs> what are we saying about the justice system? I don't know if I can be an ice cream court judge if this is the bullshit that's going to happen. I mean, do we really need courts at all i mean can't just people just you know be good and refrain from smoking and drinking and swearing and playing billiards and cards can we just just all agree that we're just gonna just do that yeah we have it in our power i mean we don't do we really even need an ice cream court no i don't think we, we need, do i don't think we need any of these courts i don't i think you're right maybe Maybe just a tennis court. Yeah, or pickleball. Pickleball court. I mean, yeah, you can play pickleball on, on a tennis court. You can. Yeah, so you, you can play two different sports. And pickleball is easy on the body, you know, yeah. for those of us aging a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe we should contact that focus group and let them know that we're just going to go with a tennis court instead of an ice cream court. And we return to the tennis court or the focus group still in session weeks later. So the chicken dinner, do we get seasonings or do we have to bring our own seasonings to the chicken? Oh, what these people are coming in. Oh, it's like they're carrying pitchforks and torches. But I was curious about the, the, the soda point. I mean, you know, didn't Coca-Cola have cocaine in 1919? Because I would be into that. And, um, yes, if you if it was legal in 1919, you will get all the cocaine in your coke that you would ever desire. But you sold me. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm tempted by this chicken dinner, but I'm a little worried about the urgency of the mob outside with the pitchfork and 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 I don't know what they're demanding. What do they want? No more courts. And additional pitchforks. We only have the one pitchfork. We demand pickleball. Down with injustice! Down with injustice! I'm not really sure. I mean, their, their demands are kind of confusing and contradictory. I would like one peppercorn. Just one single peppercorn. And here you go, little boy. Thank you, mister. Thank you so much. You put that peppercorn someplace safe. I'll put it someplace safe and keep it under me pillow every single night and I'll wish for Supreme Court ice cream court justice. Right. And remember and that's where the Supreme Court fairy came from. <laughs> every year for a small consideration, he'll take the peppercorn from under your pillow and leave you perhaps a judgment if you've been a good little boy or girl. Well, Dad, that that bedtime story was really confusing, but also strangely compelling. 
I am going to be good though, going forward. And the part about where I was murdering you was, was disturbing, but I mean, I understand why you were getting that. (laughs) You've actually stabbed me though. What? True. (laughs) Good night, sweet prince. Good night. And so, little Tony, did you like that bedtime story of the a story within a story? Yeah, it was so strange. Uh, Dad number two, um, I have to n- number you in order. But, the, you know, in the story that the, the, the kid was, I mean, he was kind of psychotic and I don't know, but inspirational too, strangely compelling. But the moral of the story is I'm now number one. <laughs> oh, I understand. It all makes sense now. It all makes sense. And isn't that the moral of our improv today? When you're number two, you can become number one by taking out somebody else. Who's higher than you? Nobody. That's yeah, it's like the Sopranos all over again. It's true. Well, that was another good journey, another fun improv journey with my guests before we bring this um, rather wild episode to an end why don't we um uh have a little shameless self-promotion doug well if you need to get in touch with me uh get in touch with me at dougmorency.com you'll see all of my latest shenanigans jack if you need to get in touch with me yeah it could be found at jackmosshammer at gmail.com and uh (laughs) I probably shouldn't be giving out my personal email on, on air, but to millions of listeners, if you get docs, yeah. don't blame me. It's okay. Just uh, what street was your original uh, street you were born on? Uh, it was four two four. And, and you're, well, you're Canadian. You, have, you don't have a social security number, right? I was going to say I do. I'm American, actually, oh, uh, and I always oh. remember because it was also my social security number. Wait, you're an American? <laughs> you moved to Canada? This is a whole oh, yeah. other topic. We need to cover that. I'm an American, and so is my wife, and so is my dog, but we all live in Toronto. Oh, do you have a spare bedroom? Just, you know, I'm not sure about the 2024 (laughs) election. (laughs) We have a futon you could use. Okay, fantastic. Uh, Curtis, where can people find you? Um, You can find me at curtisrutherford.com. That's R-E-T-H-E-R-F-O-R-D.com. You can also find me at Actually Curtis on most of the social media networks. You can find my uh, improv podcast, Improv Beat by Beat, in basically any podcast repository. Just search for Improv Beat by Beat. Um, If you are studying for the SAT for some reason, or you know someone studying for the SAT, my book, Laser Focus on SAT Math, is available on Amazon. And you can also find me with Megaplex or many of my other teams performing around Los Angeles. Thank you, Curtis, for being here and keeping us laser focused on comedy. I'm Billy DeClerc. I'm your host. That's our show. Goodbye.